Well, one of my favorite classes in college was Psych 101. It was a freshman uh, year class, and, and the reason I kind of enjoyed it is because it kind of taught some of those interesting ways that our brains work, that they're wired, the kind of habits that we build in. Things like uh, Pavlov's theory, the, the idea of conditioning, that if one thing leads to another with enough repetition, it'll eventually become a habit. And you might recognize this as the man who uh, created a, a need for his dogs to salivate by ringing a bell and feeding them for a bunch of times. I remember learning about the halo effect. What the halo effect isn't about uh, killing goblins on Xbox, but uh, the halo effect was more about how we all have cognitive bias no matter where we're from or the things we grew up with. But, but arguably one of my favorite ones was called the Stanford Marshmallow Test that talked about um, this idea of delayed gratification. How do we have it? Some, do they have it more naturally than others? And you might have seen these before. You might have seen uh, reenactments. It was pretty simple. It is the psychologist, they take a kid, they'd put him in into an empty room with a marshmallow and they'd say, hey, here's a marshmallow. Now, you can eat this marshmallow or if you uh, don't eat it, don't lick it, don't touch it until we get back, then you can have two marshmallows. And they would kind of then put the kid in the room, leave, and then just watch what happens. And You know, we, uh, we live in an immediate gratification society, do we not? That oftentimes when we find ourselves wanting something, we are oftentimes willing to sacrifice a little bit more for it. And this doesn't just apply to a marshmallow. This applies to our values, our priorities, the things that mean most to us in life. If we want more stuff, if we want more square footage, if, if we want new rims on the car, sometimes we sacrifice time at home uh, in order to work a little bit more. If we want more notoriety for ourselves uh, or for our kids, we'll sacrifice things that matter most, sacrifice time at church in order to maybe chase after those. We want more comfort. And so we might take a few corners. We'll sacrifice our integrity in order to get there faster. And at times we, we have a tendency to justify these instant gratifications saying, well, it's just for a season. It's just a, it's just a moment. It's just kind of, I need to get my priorities straight. But the word of God calls it something different. The word of God calls this, when we're in those moments, in those decisions, in those seasons, calls it uh, idolatry. Because it's the real dangers when we sacrifice, oftentimes something good for something maybe either less good, but it's still a good thing. And those moments turn into seasons, those seasons turns into habits, and then without realizing, and it's been a few years without a second thought. And the emphasis that scripture places on, and what we're going to talk about is idolatry today, is that when you face uh, idolatry in the face, you need to pay more attention, not to what you are chasing after, but what you are leaving behind. And that's kind of where we're headed to today. So if you have a Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I'd love for you to join me there this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one on your way out the door. You can stop off at Guest Central if you have a, a phone smartphone, you can get that out, turn on the Bible app. Hopefully you are a note taker, write in your Bible, take notes of the things that we share here because we want to grow in our relationship with God. We are in week 15 of this teaching series called True North. So if you're just joining us, you're kind of coming halfway-ish. And so there's, you can watch old sermons to catch up. But this whole idea that we all have a true north in our lives. We all have something that gives us a compass on how do I make decisions, the actions, priorities of my life, my beliefs, and they all come together. And this man by the name of Paul, some 2,000 years ago, he's writing to a group of Christians saying, your true north needs work. 
You need to take a harder look at what is the compass of your life to really help you determine and to decipher whether or not you are living a life that you want to live, let alone one that Jesus has called you to. So I got a lot to get through today. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're starting in verse 1. We got a long text to read here off the bat. You can follow along with me or just listen here today. He says, for I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, that they all passed through the sea. He's referring to the book of Exodus, talking about the people of Israel. He said, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate of the same spiritual food, talking about the manna that came down from heaven and drank from the same spiritual drink, talking about when Moses uh, bust open the rock and water came out. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. So then he kind of does a little play on words. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. He says, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and they were killed by snakes. And we do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happen again to them were examples as they were written down as warnings to us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, he says, be careful that you do not fall. Paul kind of begins, he says, don't be ignorant of the fact, uh, people, that just because somebody sounds like, acts like, looks like a person of faith, it doesn't mean that they actually are. And he points back to the, to the ancient people of Israel. He's saying, think about all that they had. Think about all of the miracles that God did for them. By day, they followed a pillar of cloud. By night, a pillar of fire. When they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, God provided quail and manna from heaven. When their back was against the wall, when they were being pursued by the Egyptians, Moses put his staff in the water, spread it, and then they walked through on dry ground. Like, think about that for a moment. Like, think about that you are fleeing a country, you're fleeing slavery, you're fleeing oppression because you want freedom to honor and walk with your God. And you are being pursued to the point where Literally, your back is against a watery wall and, and pursuing you is your enemy and they don't want you to live anymore. And when you think all hope is lost, God says, nope, I got a different plan. I've got a different way. I've got a different story. He says, Moses, go in the water. And then they walk through on dry land and then they get to the other side, water, and then they're safe and they're free. And God is saying to us, and he's saying to the church in Corinth, and he's saying through Paul, he says, but they still went their own way. Like everything that they had, everything, every, every opportunity to see God at work in their lives instead of living with him, instead of running towards him, they still went their own way. He says, ultimately, the problem is, is they suffered from idolatry. There are idolaters. So what is idolatry? If we were to sum it up, you could say idolatry is this, is idolatry is fleeing God for anything else. Fleeing God for anything else. Idolatry kind of speaks to the fact that we all have a search. We all have a desire for fulfillment in life that deep down we know 
You and I know. Maybe that's why you're here today. Maybe you're, you're here, you're giving church the first try. Maybe it's been decades and you're here today because you know deep down that there is something not right. There's something off. You need fulfillment. You need meaning. You need purpose. You need hope. And so you're like, I don't know. I've heard about this God thing. I'm going to give, give it a shot. Because deep down, idolatry speaks to that fact that we all have gaps. We have holes that we want filled in our lives. And idolatry, you think about it, like, like the Ten Commandments, the first two talk about idolatry. Number one, don't have any other gods before Yahweh, the Lord Most High. Number two, don't make fa- false gods. So, so two out of the ten, that's like 20%. I think my math's right there, right? 20% of the most famous rules of how to live well in this life deal with this issue of beware of the idolatry that wants to take over your heart and over your mind. Now, if we were to take a step back and say, let's talk about their idolatry versus our idolatry today, we tend to think of idolatry as ancient. But the thing is, is idolatry has and always will live in the human heart. That as humankind, we have always struggled with loving things above our love for God. Now, their idolatry had names. It had places. It had temples. They, they had the pagan gods, the Greek and Roman gods. There's the goddess uh, Aphrodite. She was the goddess of, of sex and of beauty and fertility. There was uh, the god Mars. He was the god of war and protection. There was the god Plutus, who was the god of money. Now, the thing is, is those things aren't naturally bad or wrong. It's not bad to want to be healthy. It's not wrong to want to have kids. It is not a sin to desire to make an honest living. Now, where it began to go wrong, though, is not only who they were worshiping, but how as well. So the way it worked is, is let's say you, you, you had a family, you didn't, you didn't have kids, you wanted to have kids. And so you would go to, to Aphrodite's temple, and you'd bring a particular sacrifice, and you would make prayers and offerings there. You would bow down, you would worship her with the hopes that she would then receive your sacrifice and gift you with that fertility, your time, your money, your attention, and yes, even your self-worth went to those gods. Because here's the thing, is if that God didn't come through, then there would be something wrong with you. See, that's the danger in idolatry is when it's fixated on something other than King Jesus. Idolatry says if that doesn't come through, if you don't get that fulfillment from that thing, from that person, from that institute, then When it comes to fruition, there is something still off or wrong with you, not with it. Timothy Keller has a great book on on idolatry. He calls it counterfeit gods, or he sometimes refers to them as functional saviors. Now, you might be here to say, well, Eric, I don't have any idolatry in my life. I don't have any false idols that I worship. I don't make sacrifices to any weird pagan made-up temples or gods. And the truth of the matter is, is that, that Americans, as us today, we have idols. We have American idols, not just the game show like Kelly Clarkson and all of them. We, we have legitimate American idols. It's oftentimes these same idols, they just have different names. They don't have faces or their own temples, per se. The god of money isn't necessarily Plutus anymore. It sounds a lot like a comfort or shopping, retail therapy, as some people call it. The goddess of beauty is akin to, to six-pack abs and fad diets. You know, one of the greatest, uh, uh, I think, idols that we have today is I refer to it as the soulmate idol. 
And, uh, and what, 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 what I meet with couples who are, who are, who are getting married, uh, doing premarital counseling, one of the things I like to spend time talking to them about is like, hey, let's just make sure we don't have a concept of a soulmate. Because the concept of a soulmate says there's one person in God's entire existence that he's created that can bring me and complete me like nobody else can. And so when I talk to these couples and we do premarital counseling, I always go through the five love languages. You might be familiar with these. If not, uh, I'll go through them. Number one, there's the love language of words of affirmation. Number two, there's physical touch. Then there's uh, quality time, gifts, and acts of service. And so when I start talking to couples who are like, yeah, we're ready to give and I say, okay, take the five love languages, come back, we'll talk about it next week and how they flush out. And I can guarantee you 90% accuracy, those couples are going to come back with like the same two. And it's almost always words of affirmation and physical touch. Because here's what, like, like those, those couples about to be married, like they come through, we just love each other. I could just survive on, on kisses and just telling you how much an air and how much you love me. That's all that we need. We don't need a house. We don't need a car. We don't even need food. We can just survive off one another. I love you so much. I love you. Okay? This is the way it goes. Dead serious. Then you fast forward, like when I talk to couples, like 20 years later, some of you have been married in the house way longer. Some of you have been married like twice as long as I've been alive. It's no longer words of affirmation, physical touch. It's like, hey, don't touch me, <laughs> right? Don't touch me. Uh, I, I don't want to know what you say. Give me your money and do something for me, right? It shifts to, to gifts and acts of service. I don't care what you're going to say. Actually go do something for once. You see, my point is this, is, is we change over time. We, we ad adjust, we adapt, we alter, we, we shift, and because idols are man-made, oftentimes in our hearts and our minds, they shift over time too. And what once fulfilled you doesn't quite as much anymore. That golden number paycheck, once you reach it, doesn't quite fulfill you like you once thought. That square footage goal, it's never going to be big enough. It's always shifting. It's always changing. Idols change because we change. But God does not. God never changes in his love for you, his plans for you, his desires, the obedience he calls you to. So if you want to know where might idolatry be running in your life, here's a quick litmus test. I'm going to show you a question, and it's a gut question. Just, just read the question. I'm going to read the question, and then just gut, gut answer. If you could get more of just one thing in life, what would it be? Just gut question. One thing. You get more of one thing in life, what would it be? Like, what, like, what's your gut reaction? What comes first to mind? What does your, your heart kind of jump out of your skin? If I can just get more of it, I'll take it. Is it more money? Is it more, more beauty or health? Is it more sex? Is it more, more influence? Maybe it's something less vain. Maybe, maybe it's like, man, I would, I would love to have more family. More, more recognition, more, more time. See, the tricky thing about idolatry is that anything, anything in life can become one because anything can get us to run away from God and towards it. Look at the Apostle Paul picking up in verse 13. He says, don't be ignorant just because they look and quack and sound like a Christian don't mean that they are. 
They had all of God at their fingertips and they still walked away because idolatry was present in their heart. They were not getting rid of it. And he says, so stand firm, be on guard. And then he gives these words, starting in verse 13. He says, so no temptation has overtaken you except what is common. If you have a Bible with you, highlight, circle, underline, star, exclamation point, that word common. What is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you may endure it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee. Flee from idolatry. If you've been walking through us, uh, through uh, True North, 1 Corinthians, this word flee is coming up quite a bit, is it not? He says, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which I give thanks to a participation? He said, we can give thanks to Jesus because his death has atoned for our sins. We have new life and we get to participate in that. And is it not the bread that we break, participation in the body? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body and we will all share in that loaf. That's Paul's way of saying Jesus is enough for everybody. But I want to go back to what he says, no temptation unless that which is common, that which is common, ordinary, usual, mundane in our lives, be weary of those things. In a passage, in a text about idolatry, it's not these big overarching things. Hey, watch out for, for your sexual desires. Really be on guard for that. The God of greed, slay him as quick as possible or else he will overtake. He says, no, that which is common. That which is basic. Not Starbucks basic, but you get the idea. That which is at your fingertips. That which is probably around you at any given point in the day. Anything will distract you and tempt you away from knowing, seeking, following, loving Jesus if you give it the chance. And the hard part about idolatry sometimes, lean in on when I say this, is that it's oftentimes good things. Things that are meaningful. Things that matter to us oftentimes get a slight edge over God. Sometimes it's hobbies. There's good things that we can enjoy in life. A couple weeks ago, uh, there, was a, there was a couple I was talking to them. They were joking because uh, I saw them. They're, they're here today and whatnot, but you know who you are. Um, but they said, yeah, I was like, I was going. I'm like, well, football season's starting, so we'll see you in, in March type of deal. And it was kind of a running joke and uh, because, you know, like they said, yeah, you know, this is what's happened, the schedule, all that type of stuff. And because football season, that means fantasy football has started, all right? Fantasy football people, show, raise, raise your hands, how many people play fantasy football in the room today? See how the are like kind of cautious, right? Like, I don't know. This is church. Here's the thing. I play fantasy football. Our staff plays fantasy football. You can't be on our staff. Or you get fired if you don't. No, it's not a real rule. Thought about it. Uh, I was back-to-back champs, and then I finished last place like the last two years. So Blaine Wright, if you're watching this, you're dead to me. Um, but here's the thing. Like, think about what like just fantasy football is in its entire. Like, like watching football is kind of a pipe dream, is it not? Like you put on your favorite jersey, you sit, you watch the team. I get, yeah, that's your team, those are your, but they don't play for you. They don't know who you are. If the team wins a championship, they're not mailing you a ring. Hey, thanks for all of our cheers out in the crowd. Yeah, thanks, bro. And then we've decided to step even further away from reality and say, just watching it and pretending and cheering like we belong on the team, now we're going to own our own teams. 
They call it fantasy football for a reason. Because it's a complete utter fantasy in our minds. Uh, in college, I was an RA, and I had to mediate uh, these roommates where this one roommate was skipping class. He was skipping chapel for the sake of studying for his fantasy football drafts. One night, he stayed up all night doing mock drafts. This means he's doing fake drafts for the fantasy league of the team he is not a part of for the players who will never know he ever existed. And I have to step into this room and be like, what's going on? He kept me up all night. Well, why did he keep you up all night? He was doing mock drafts. I was like, well, why didn't you just shut the lights off? He's like, well, because I focus better when the lights are on. I was like, well, why don't you turn the sound off? It's because like, I, like, there's something that when, when the noise makes, ding, 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 you know, that it, like, it just puts me in the zone and I just have to be ready because I've got uh, uh, a number 13 of my 16 fantasy drafts coming up. I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa hold up. You have how many? Like, I'm pretty sure this dude skipped on a date once to draft a fantasy football. Now, here's the thing saying, I love fantasy football. Fantasy football is fun. There's nothing wrong with it. It's a good thing, but it can become a God thing in life that distracts our time, our value, our money, our energy away from it. For some, it's a game or hobby. For others, it can be an idol, and the same applies to us. You know, one of the greatest resistances, though, of idolatry comes from the Old Testament. It comes from the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Uh, i kind of give you the story here. In Genesis chapter 15, there was a man by the name of Abram. And God said, hey, Abram, I found you to be a man of faith, a man who, who loves me, places his relationship with me above all else. And so I'm going to give you a new name. I'm going to make you the father of, of my people. And you're going to have descendants. You're going to have a family tree that outnumbers the sand on the seashore, the stars in the sky. And he's like, this is a great plan. Abraham's like, you know, like way past his midlife at this point. And decade after decade goes by and he has no child. Here's this tangible promise from God. God says, because of your faith, because you honor and love me, I'm going to give you arguably one of the greatest blessings you could ever imagine. And then he takes matters into his own hands at one point. And that doesn't go, kind of goes well, but it doesn't go well. Different story, different time. And then finally, when he's 100 years old, his wife bears him his first son. And this son grows up. The son's name is Isaac. And, and, he, and he, uh, he, he slings stuff at sheep. He, he's a good boy. He's a good old boy, all that type of stuff. And then God says, uh, Genesis chapter 2, hey, 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 Abraham, I need you to come up to Mount Moriah. I need you to prepare a sacrifice because I need to talk to you about something. And he's like, okay. Uh, he's like, just bring Isaac and bring the materials and I'll see you up there. And so he goes up to the sun. He's like, Isaac, all right, let's load up. We're going to go meet with God on the top of Mount Moriah. He's like, let's go. So they get their knapsacks on. It's like, what goes through my mind when people are trekking. And uh, Isaac, the whole time, you can imagine this little boy be like, Dad, where are we going? We're going on Mount Moriah. What are we going to do there? We're going to meet with God. Why? Because he wants a sacrifice for him. Where's the sacrifice? I don't know. And he gets to the top of the mountain, and God's waiting for him there. The man who's supposed to be the father of God's people. He says, give me the sacrifice. I want your son. The son you waited four decades for. I want him. The one thing that Abraham wanted more than anything else in life was family. Except for a relationship with God. And the whole time, Isaac's like, what are we doing here, Dad? What are we doing here? And he begins to tie his son down. Binds his wrists and his ankles. He puts them on the altar, gathers the firewood. Dad, are you really going to do this? 
I'm just going to be honest with you. I couldn't. Look, if God said to me, bring me your son, go up to that mountain, I don't know if I would go up the mountain. Or even if I got to the top of the mountain, let's say I had enough faith. I don't even know if I have that much faith, but I got to the top of the mountain, and God's like, you're going to give me a sacrifice. And I looked around, and there was no ram, no bull, no goat, no nothing. I'm taking my boy and going home, saying one's enough for me. Abraham ties down Isaac and he raises the dagger to sacrifice his one and only son. And God says, stop. And he provides a ram in the bush. Because of your faith, Abraham, because you love me literally more than your own son, our work begins to make you the father of many nations. You see, often our biggest threats to become idols aren't the things that we can clearly point or identify as against our value. It's oftentimes the things that are closest to us. The things that help us feel fulfilled, give us some sort of meaning and accomplishment. And that's not to detract from them. That's not to say you can't love and honor and cherish your children. That doesn't mean you can't work hard and make a good living. That's not to say it's wrong to live in a house. But when push comes to shove, if God said, give it to me, would you actually do it or not? When we desire things like intimacy above God, we run to sex over Jesus. When we desire affirmation, we run to the dopamine hit that is social media 95,000 times a day, hoping to see one of those little red or blue bubbles to show that somebody paid attention to us. And then we realize it's just the algorithm telling us stuff that we don't actually want to know about, but it got you back on the app. You've been there. I've been there. It happens. We desire control. And so we run to anger instead of humility over Jesus. God makes it clear that God requires your idols from you in order to follow him. If you want to be somebody who loves Jesus, if you want to be somebody who is a disciple of Christ, if you want to be somebody who has a strong faith, you're going to have to work on sacrificing your idols. And we can think about the things that we are last to give up in our obedience to God. We're last to usually give up our money. We're usually last to give up our control, our morality, our views of sexuality, our politics, our careers, your family, your hobby, your health, you name it. Anything can be an idol that gets in the way. But remember, the question we're asking is not what am I running to, it's what am I running from? And Paul says in order to be a disciple, in order to truly, like actually fully Follow after God. He uses this word again. He says, you need to flee from those idols. And here's why this word is, he says, you're going to have all these common things in life. You're going to have all these good things in life. You're going to have all these things at your fingertips, but you need to be willing to flee them. See, to flee means to run away from, but it also means to seek safety elsewhere. Meaning we need to identify what we are running from and also though where we are running towards. So how can you identify idols in your life? Three quick questions of what to run away from. They're not going to be on the screen. I'll try to repeat myself so you can uh, write them down. Number one is what can you help but not think about? Let me say that again. What can you help but not think about? Well, you have a hard time thinking that an ancient court, when they'd make a, a sacrifice, an offering to Aphrodite, that they just went home and lived their life. They probably went home and got it on with their spouse and be like, I don't know, we made the sacrifice. Is this the night we have this kid? And they're probably worrying about it over and over. Was it enough? 
Did I appease that God or not? It probably consumed who they were. So when you're at home by yourself, when you're driving in the car, when your mind wanders in your downtime or at work, where does your mind go? What can you help but not think about? Number two in identifying what can you help but not put your money towards? If you want to know how you can identify that, what can you help but not put your money towards? Usually a big indicator for most of us. Like for me, like I can't help but not put my money towards deals. Like just straight up. I buy so much garbage, stuff I don't need because it's 70% off. Like my wife is like, all right, you need to go to Walmart, get that one thing. Don't go down the clearance aisle because you will come home with stuff that we don't need. I can't tell you how many times I've bought in like a hat or like a 17th coffee mug because I thought it was cool. And then I go home, I'm like, I don't even, I don't even need this, but I can't help because like, I don't know, I don't need it, but it's 70% off. Somebody else might swoop in and get it. And so there's this, like, I can't help but not spend my money on clearance. So I need to consider that in my own life. So why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, he says, you want to help identifying where your money goes. He says this, he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Notice the order. Where your treasure is, then your heart will be there. Not where your heart is, your treasure follows. Man, that would be great if it was. But I've lived this life long enough, I've pastored long enough to know this is arguably one of the truest verses in all of scripture. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus said, hey, show me the money. Show me the money. Not what you say, not just what you're on your playlist, on your phone. Don't just make a statement. Show me your statements. That was good. That was off. That was good. (laughs) Don't just make a statement. Show me your statement. And here's the thing. You can tell me you love Jesus. You can tell me you love this church. You can tell me you love the mission. But Jesus is asking, does your bank account show that too? Like we're in this budget seat. We're in this spot in our church. It's such a weird spot, great spot, wonderful spot. We just raised $15,000 for mission. We asked for seven. But here's the thing. Like, like look around the room for service. It's very crowded in here, right? This church, is, like it was not this way like even four months ago type of situation. And second service is growing. We're like running space, all that type of stuff. Uh, kids ministry, like, I mean, it's like, I don't know, seven million kids back there type of situation. They evolved, all this type of stuff. And we're kind of saying, we're like, man, our church is going like this. Our budget's going like this. This is the reality of where we're at. I love that you love coming here. I love that you worship here. I love that you put up with my teaching, even though it's kind of weird at times. But what I want to know is also, show me the bank count. Because here's the thing is we can't continue to see the fruit of what God wants to do through us as a community of faith if the giving isn't there as well. Number three, third question is what can you help but not respond to? What can you help but not think about? What can you help but not spend your money on or give towards? What can you help but not respond to? What gets your attention easily? What fires you up quickly? What moves you to action? Paul says you need to identify first what you flee from, but you also need to determine where you flee and seek safety elsewhere. You see, the Christian life isn't just about running from stuff. And I think for a lot of us in the room, that might be one of our biggest indications about following Christ or what we are so, is the Christian life, just don't do this. Here's a list of all the things you can't do. Here's all the things that you can't say. Here's the types of movies you can't watch. And Jesus comes and he actually says, just come to me. 
Like some of you, you might have gotten saved at like a, like a summer camp and every like summer camp has this moment. I think some of them got it better. But it was like, it's like the last night and then they have this big old bonfire and somebody gets up there and throws a twig in and they would, you see that twig burn up? The kids are like, yeah. And it's like, that's going to be you unless you repent. And they're like, I don't want to do that. What does that look like? Yeah. And so literally, like, we've built an entire faith of scaring the hell out of kids instead of saying, no, 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 there is a Savior, there is a Lord, there is a Messiah, there is a Jesus who doesn't say, stop doing that, don't do it. He says, come to me. If you are burdened, come to me. I will make your burden light. If you want peace, I'll be your Prince of Peace. If you want comfort, I'll be your great comforter. Idolatry is when we run away from God towards something else. This command to fight back is when we run from everything else back to God. That's why community is so important to us. Helps you not just identify, but kill the counterfeit gods in your life. So if you want to have uh, truly a life free from idolatry, you want to have a life full of faith, I don't have a clear way, a fun way to put it, so I'm just going to put it point blank. It's my last point for this morning. Is if you want to have a life free of idolatry, it's pretty simple. Get to the point where you cannot live without Jesus. I don't know how to put it even any, any, any better than that. I don't have any fancy words. I don't have any cute run-on phrases for this. If you want to flee from idolatry, the common things, the good things in life, get to the point where you cannot live without Jesus. When that question says, what's the one thing, if you could have more of and less, what would it be? That your heart jumps and says, Jesus. I want more time in prayer. I want more time in his word. I want more power over sin. I want to be free from temptation. And here's the thing. We can talk all about the problems. We can talk about the issues. We can talk about the idols that creep in. But that's not what I want to do. I want to focus on the solution. I want to focus on the goal. And that is Jesus himself. And we run to him by recognizing how much he loves you what he's done for you, what he has in store from you. Like, Think about the beginning passage. They had all these miracles. They had all these things as examples for the purpose to show that God was with them. God was for them, that God loves them. Why was God in a cloud? Why was he sending water out of a rock? Why was he sending bread from heaven to show how cool he was? No, to show how much he loves to show his direction is best to prove that he can be trusted to show that he is the most valuable thing in this life and that when we run to him even those good things even those common things even those things that are valuable to us they get put in the right place and so if God ever says hey I need that we can say good because I love you more than that God says 10% to me you say okay yeah because I trust you that call to raise your kids in a way that, that ushers them into Jesus, absolutely. I'll make hard choices, I'll, I'll cut off this, because I want them to know you. Those relationships that kind of get in the way, we willingly cut those off because we say, I value my love for Jesus above all else. We defeat idols by not just saying that's bad or that's wrong, because that, that rubs in us. Like it rubs in me, like it's a weird message to say like, hey, don't love your kids, okay? That's not what I'm saying here. I'm saying love your, love your kids, but love Jesus more. Work hard. Make a good living, but love Jesus more. Root for that sports team, but love Jesus more. 
have friends, have family, have hobbies, have priorities. But make sure that Jesus still gets the best of you above all else. Because nothing outweighs the benefits of knowing and finding and following and waiting on Jesus. I want to read this quote and we'll head into our time of communion. It's from Timothy Keller, his book, Counterfeit Gods. He says this, he says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth My prayer for this week in preparing this message was, God, show me the idols in my life. And so as we prepare for communion, it it kind of provides us this this two-tiered thing. Number one, to reflect on who Jesus was and what he did for you and I. That he is our Lord, he is our Messiah, he loves you no matter where you've been, no matter how much you've been running your own way, no matter the path that led you here this morning. Jesus has, has open arms saying, come to me. I will give you rest. I love you. Let me give you a different way, a better way of living this life. But it also is a chance for us to pause and say, because of Jesus' sacrifice, what do I need to be more open-handed about? And I was praying for through this and saying, like, God, I don't want to get up on stage and you guys need to be, you know, get rid of your idols when I don't have things to sacrifice too. And God put it crystal clear in my heart this morning. I was up at like 5 a.m. this morning getting ready. And God's like, you got some just stuff you just need to get rid of. I was like, nah. Nah. And he was like, no, yeah, you just got a lot of stuff. He's like, look, you think about your closet. When was the last time you wore half that stuff? Think about all the, all the hobbies that you have. You have like 17,000 golf clubs. You can only play with 14. There's something wrong with this picture. He said to me, simply put, get rid of it. Get rid of it. You don't need it. Show me that I'm your prized possession. Show me that, that, that you desire to know me above all else. Show me. And what I'm committed to doing, it doesn't have to be for you. This isn't a guilt trip. This isn't twisting your arm. But God said, this, Eric, you're at your step of obedience for this week is to start getting rid of the stuff you don't need or you have too much of. And the stuff that actually has worth or value, I want you to sell it and I want you to give that money away. That's just what I'm going to do. Now, I don't say, I'm not saying by any way, shape, or form, that's what you got to do. But for me and my obedience to follow Jesus, it's to kind of make this line in the sand to say, I'm going to at least strive to flee from my connection to things so I can focus on my connection to King Jesus. So as the timer comes on a screen, there's gonna be three minutes. We invite you to remember, to reflect on who Jesus is, what he's done in your life. During these three minutes, I want you to do two things. Number one, thank him for his grace. Thank him for his sacrifice. Now he's forgiven you and forgives us over and over and over again to walk with him. Even though we chase after idols in our life, Jesus says, it's cool, I was aware, I did it anyways, come back. But also begin to pray and to consider what are the idols in my life that I need to turn from and how do I go about that? Jesus, give me your wisdom and discernment to make that path. Let's pray and we'll continue to worship. Jesus, we love you, we thank you pray for the kids ministry volunteers preach long again they're going to pull their hair out grace thank you but i pray for us as a church as a congregation as parents as spouses single moms single dads 
widows, divorcees, friends, co-workers, business owners. Lord, that we have a lot of, of our identity that we bring to you. We bring it all to you this morning to say, God, we want to be open-handed. And I pray, Lord, through the power of your spirit that those who need comfort, you give them comfort. Those who need peace, you give them peace. Those who are here this morning and kind of a, you're saying, oh, I came to church for the first time to hear a message about idolatry and what that's really speaking to them is that they've been chasing their own way. They've been chasing their own heart and that you overcome them to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life that nobody comes through me. And you make them aware that Jesus, you love them. You died for them. You gave yourself for them. For those of us who desire that, that deeper step of discipleship, that next step of faith as we call it here, show it to us, but don't just show it to us. Give us the courage and the boldness to act as well. We worship you, Jesus, because you and you alone are king of our hearts. We give this time as worship because you are worthy. Shame that we pray.